Our scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, and how many saw them coming, sorry, saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. And then for Mark 10. Verse 17. The rich young man. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Before, before, uh, before you get the sermon, you get an update, and I think it's going to be a good update. Well, it's got to be a good update. We had a great bike ride yesterday um, from Daniel Berge on Nepal and uh, Himalayan life. Daniel. Good morning, Southland Church. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, it's good to be back in Canada. It's good to be back amongst you after a month of Nepal. And as you know, one of the things that we do in Nepal is care for street children and in fact, um, I just lost my concept of what I wanted to say because of the text which is listened to. The text about the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the texts that drives me in, in my work in mission. Um, the fact that Jesus has compassion on the crowd and the fact that we are supposed to have compassion and, and the fact that often I feel like having two fish 
and five loaves, or actually half a fish, and maybe half a loaf, and hundreds of street kids, and what am I supposed to do? And yet God has been very, very gracious. Last year, um, much of our effort has gone into earthquake relief um, in Nepal. But really, uh, our long, um, long-term work has been and continues to be with uh, street kids, and I've been very much working with street kids and our staff over the last few weeks, um, working on those loaves and fish. Um, I, I think we have a, a really great concept of, of um, how, how we deal with the street kids in our city in Pokhara, how we have a center at the city, um, at the heart of the city where the kids can come and drop by any time during the day and get a warm meal and can get cleaned up if they wish so, uh, can get treatment for some of their uh, wounds and, and whatever issues they have, and just a place to rest for a moment um, and some counseling. And then we have the shelter where they can come in for the night. We have an apprenticeship program at, at the, the recycling plant for the bigger ones. We have another shelter for the smaller ones who can go to school. Right now we work actively with about 120 street kids um, in, in Pokhara. And in fact, I think that's going to be the main focus of the Sutherland church trip next year when we do go together to Nepal, work with the street kids. And I think that's going to be really, really cool. Help out in the kitchen, help out in the shelter, help out with, with the various sports programs we have for the kids. However, working with street kids is not only cool. Um, I think Karina may have shared with some of you that over the recent few weeks we have lost um, six of the kids that we have worked with for quite a number of years. And that's been hard. Um, well, it's hard anyways to see them go back to the street, take back to that life of violence and, and substance abuse and gang and, and whatnot. Um, it's been particularly hard for our Nepalese staff who have poured in so much um, into their lives and, and have tried to be mom and dad to them. Um, and then all of a sudden, everything's gone, uh, the loss and the rejection of it. So I've worked with, with our staff through that. This, so, so we deal with good stories and bad stories. A typical story, maybe, would be the, the story of Silas. Um, Silas is a boy who's been with us for, I think, about three years now. Silas, Silas's dad was an alcoholic who literally drank himself to death shortly after Silas's birth. His mom uh, couldn't make it alone, just it was too much. So she disappeared. We don't know what happened to her. Silas was by himself when he was three, was taken in by his grandparents, who within two years passed away. So he was again um, on his own when he was five. Was, uh, he took to the street at that point of time, was taken in by some child welfare organization, put into a home, didn't go well. Um, he was there for four years, but took back to the streets, and then was actually in, in a gang in poker for about five years. When he was 14, he came to our, to our shelter. Um, a 14-year-old weighing 23 kgs, um, and... It's just, just a wild, wild boy. And then transformation happened. He's, he's actually one, one of our success stories, so to speak. Um, 
transformation happened. He joined the, the apprenticeship program. Um, he kind of made it. And now he works, he works at Himalayan life as a hockey coach. That was his dream, and he's living his dream. It's fantastic. And so we have six kids who left on the one side. We have a number of kids, not just Silas, who, uh, who are, have successfully made that difficult, difficult, difficult trans- transition from the street uh, to um, a normal life. And I've been asked the question, I've obviously asked myself the question, what is it? Uh, what's the difference? Why? Why does it work for one and not for the others? And I'm taking the risk of, of sounding cheesy, um, but I think really it's, it's Jesus that makes the difference. Not that the others do not have had some kind of relationship, but you could see that in Silas's heart, this new creation thing has really taken root. And, and for him too, I may, make no mistake, the old life has, has left scar after scar in his life too. Uh, but somehow, that, sorry, that new creation thing is stronger. That's my hope for all the three kids, of course. That's my hope that even when we go next year together as, as a team, that we can help three kids transition into, into that new creation thing and, and learn what it means to be, to be uh, well, living life as, as God wants us to. So I had four minutes on my plan for this update. I think I just took six. But the plan also said that I think Jennifer was going to do scripture reading. If James can be passed up as Jennifer, then I can do six minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, for those who are wondering, the, the uh, ride for refuge and a number of us rode our bikes yesterday to support Himalayan life, and it went very, very well, led by our team, Captain Heather Pasman. Um, and she, yeah, um, she passed like 100 people at the end, just flying through, knocking people down. Um, but she did fantastic. It was a great thing, and a lot of money was raised. Uh, and Daniel will let you know uh, later what, uh, what some of that money is going to go towards because it's, uh, it's really exciting. Uh, not cheesy at all. And, of course, when we talk about, you know, well, the answer is Jesus. You think people go, oh, okay, there you go. Um, but we're still learning it in the church, right, that there's so many things that we center our faith on other than Jesus Christ. I just have to ask you, what do you get riled up about? And some of the things that people who are part of a church can get riled up about are, you know, religious type things. You're upset at the world or somebody in your family is sinning or something and they need to get on the right path or something like that. Instead of uh, really focusing on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's an easy shift to make. I came across a quote this week by uh, an author that I really like. If you can't see the words, that's okay. Um, I'll read them out for you. His name's Kurt Vonnegut. He died not that long ago. What? seven, eight years ago. Uh, some of you might remember him, not exactly a religious figure, and took great pride in, in, in saying that he's not a Christian. Um, but he called himself a Christ-loving atheist, which is interesting. And he has a number of quotes like this that, that basically say to Christian people, how come you've forgotten Jesus? That's kind of the most appealing thing about your faith. And so listen to this quote. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes that Beatitudes, remember, we covered those a couple weeks ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. These, 
Uh, often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. Uh, I haven't heard of one, one. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. This is a non-Christian person almost begging us as Christians to focus a little bit more on Jesus Christ. Now he might have a, a uh, he might have it wrong in terms of having a distinction between the Old Testament and, and the New. The God of the Old Testament is a God of grace and love, but uh, but he's a bit corrective in some of the things he says is Kurt Vonnegut. Today we get to the heart of the matter in terms of the living word. Jesus as the center. And we've looked at Jesus teaching and Jesus healing. And today we look at Jesus loving. Uh, introduced by a beautiful prayer from Irene and uh, great uh, worship this morning as well. Jesus loving. And a reminder from Daniel that this is one of the things that spurs him on in his work to look with compassion upon these masses of people. There's a famous prayer in the book of Ephesians. It's something you should memorize as you read scripture because it's a typical uh, Paul, how he writes, where it's a bit of a run-on sentence. And actually, in your Bibles, it, the translators have made it easier because some of, the, some of the sentences in the New Testament just go on seemingly forever. And this is one of them where he tells these people, this church, how he's praying for them. And and basically what he says is, I pray that the eyes of your heart, who has eyes in their heart, so he's asking you to understand something of depth here. I pray that the eyes of your heart, the center of your being, would be enlightened. That's my prayer for you. As a minister, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. It's my prayer for you here, Sutherland Church, all of us together. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may see the depths of that which is impossible to see. This is basically how it's said. That that you can grasp that which is ungraspable, the love of God. And that's where you, you remember the words, the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of Jesus Christ is so big and so enduring and strong and central that you will never fully grasp it. Isn't that great? You're never done growing. And if you feel bitterness rising up inside of you, if you're disappointed with the world all the time, you need to grow in asking God again, would you help me to to grow in seeking to grasp the love of Christ? Because part of the problem with the love of Christ, and there are many problems with the love of Christ in this world, It would be much easier for you to organize your life in in some ways uh, if Jesus didn't love everybody. Because then you could write certain people off. You could treat other people as if they were just the problem. But the fact that Jesus has loved everybody, including you, means you don't have that option in how you treat other people. You have to see them first, no matter what else is going on. You have to see them first through this love of Jesus Christ. However they identify themselves, however you would identify them, They are first and foremost loved by Jesus Christ. So think of that. Think of the people that you know that you think. Think of, you know, who can you not stand the most? Don't say the name. Keep it quiet. What is it that you need to know about them the most? Well, they're this. They're from this group or they do this. This is what you need to know about them the most. They are loved by God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Jesus loves everyone. God loves everyone and shows us this love in Jesus Christ. So two stories today, Mark 6 and Mark 10. It's not my interest to unpack the details of each scene, but rather to take these texts today with one question overlaid. And the question is, what do we learn in these encounters about Jesus Christ's love? About how he loves? So Mark 6. Jesus and his followers set out to get some time away from the busyness. So now you're with them, right? Because you, you make this mistake. You think that everybody in Bible times just had it easy and they don't know how busy we all are. You know, and if you were just not, you know, if you were not busy, then maybe you could pray. But his followers are trying to get away from the crowds, trying to get away from the busyness. And they actually set up a little plan. But people see them and recognize them. And as James read to us, people come from all of their towns and there's this crowd. And it's late in the day. And one of the things you know when it's late in the day is that these people must be hungry. And as the story goes, Jesus miraculously, but the miracle is not emphasized. It's not like uh, the, the most important thing about the text is this, is this miracle. What's most important in the text is the provision that Jesus provides. Jesus feeds the whole crowd with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And our response is, wow, if only he could do that for me. And my response is, he does that for you. They were satisfied and they had enough. That's what it says. And this note in verse 34, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Translation, another way of writing that. When Jesus saw the crowds, he loved them. Daniel said this is partially what compels the, the ministry of Himalayan life. He looked at these people. And you know the text, you have the verse. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Scene 2, Mark 10, is the rich young ruler. A very different scene. And maybe one that doesn't uh, well up the love in you as much as these beleaguered masses of people. Because this is an individual, not a crowd, and this individual approaches Jesus. He may have some respect for Jesus, but he is, I think we can say, more interested in himself than he is in Jesus. He's more interested in assuring that he has a particular standing in the world. And he comes to Jesus with a question. This is a man who has been able to acquire most things in his life, including his social standing, his religious standing, and his wealth. So he asks Jesus a question that he's used to asking about everything in life. What must I do to acquire? That's the, the language. What must I do to inherit, it might say in some of your, your scripture, your uh, translations. But what must I do to acquire eternal life? And they have this conversation. Jesus says, you know the commandments and begins to list them. An interesting note here, you see the list in these commandments. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you know, uh, as Jesus lists them, he includes one there that says, do not defraud. That's not, on, that's not in the Ten Commandments. I mean, don't lie, don't bear false witness, don't, so we could translate it. But he seems to be um, crafting these commandments, particularly for the audience of this individual. And the conversation continues. And the man does something that it strikes me. We have examples in this in our day and age with people, even people of particular standing, who talk about um, how they do everything pretty well. And so Jesus says, you know the commandments, this, 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 this. And before Jesus gets through the list, the man says, I know them. 
You don't have to keep going. I know them all, and I'm keeping them. So we could keep going, right? I'm so good at keeping the commandments. I'm the best commandment keeper of all the commandment keepers. He might say that, but might not. He says, I'm keeping them all. And Jesus, verse 21, this is our Lord and Savior. This is the love poured out to the world. As the man with some, not as much as I just displayed probably, but some bravado says, I got got it. Not only do I know them, I'm keeping them. As he's saying that, what is Jesus' response to him? Compassion. Almost a bit of sorrow. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Because he had so many things, and the things were preventing him from letting go and following Christ. And Jesus then voices it. Okay? But remember, this is Jesus our Lord not saying like so many religious teachers present him to be. Kind of like the, well, you better watch it because God's going to get you. Like the woman caught in adultery, how we misinterpret that text to say Jesus is like, you better, you better not go and sin anymore. Which, which negates the entire rest of the story and how he treated her. So this isn't Jesus saying to the rich young ruler, you little such and such. If you you got to go and sell everything you have and go. Jesus has just looked at him and loved him. And then he says, okay, you want eternal life? Do one more thing. Take everything that you have and let it go. Sell it. And the man walks away disheartened. Two scenes, each mentioning Jesus' love, or as we've called this, Jesus' loving This is, I mean, what's on the screen now is personally almost feels strange to put it up on some presentation software. Because this is where I would like to be. It's where I am. It's where I would like you to be. And it's somehow our evangelism before the world to say without judgment, I am lost without the love of Jesus Christ. I'm lost without the love of Jesus Christ. And the nature of what it means to be lost for me is described somewhat in these two stories. The first is a crowd and they are like a sheep. They are like sheep without a shepherd. What is most noticeable about about them practically, and the disciples go to this, is that they're going to need food and Jesus provides for their needs. But note the occasion of the occasion that calls forth the love of Jesus Christ. The occasion is that they are, in his eyes, wandering, searching, trying to figure life out. And if that is true, trying to get by, trying to feel better today than yesterday, trying to have some sense of security, they're wandering, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And if that is true, then I am in the crowd. And so are you. And some of you could tell me you're not, that you're pretty secure. But then if I talk to you for five minutes, I find the truth. We are like sheep without a shepherd. We're lost without the love of Jesus Christ. And it is right there. Right in that place of your vulnerability, whatever it is today, that Jesus loves you. As he did 
them. You want to be rid of that so much. So do I. I want things, I just want to know everything will be okay from now on and then I can somehow follow Jesus. But right in that place of sheep without a shepherd, right there, he had compassion on them. He sees it. Lost has become a word in our churches, particularly maybe 15, 20 years ago. It became kind of part of the lexicon. Some of it was through um, uh, Willow Creek Church, you know, reaching out to the lost. And I remember back then I thought, oh, that, and they didn't mean it this way. This is my own stuff that I do in my head. I, I always thought, oh, I struggle with that word because it seems a bit condescending, like, like other people are lost, and if only they have what we have, then, then they're found, which in some ways is what we're maintaining. But there still seemed to be something kind of divisive about, about that. I have come to seek and save those who are lost. You'll hear this from Jesus. It's become popular, as I say, in evangelism, but it's not simply other people. It's all of us. You are lost like sheep without a shepherd, even for you. And Jesus' reaction is to be moved to compassion. The love of Jesus Christ, and you need to know this for yourself and your loved ones, the love of Jesus Christ is bigger than your searching and is bigger than your wandering. And the love of Jesus Christ, this is a Christian statement, the most Christian statement. The love of Jesus Christ is bigger than your sin. These people, the word that's used in in the Greek is actually the masses of people. The word that's used is unwashed. There is a religious kind of connotation to it, that they were kind of outside of respectability in some ways. And Jesus reaches there no matter where you stand. I'm in the crowd and I'm lost without the love of Jesus Christ. But the second scene is so very different. A man who approaches Jesus not as part of a crowd, but as an individual with some confidence. And again, remember, nobody's confident. They're only confident until you talk to them for a while. And you know, some people might be more confident than other people, but nobody is really truly confident when it comes down to it, unless they're a sociopath, I suppose. This man comes with some sense of confidence. He's not part of the beleaguered masses. He's not, certainly in his mind, part of the unwashed. He is something of a religious expert. And he approaches Jesus with his achievement. And he says, look, I pretty much have it together, but I just want to check the box because I know, I think the man kind of thinks he knows what he has to do to get eternal life, and he wants Jesus to go, you know, so you've done it, so you're in. Um, And so he asks, what must I do to acquire eternal life? The question for me and for us is, is this man lost? It's different than the nature of how the crowds are lost. But, of course, the answer that I would say is he is lost. He has acquired so much religious standing and wealth, but he's unable or unwilling to let go and to trust Jesus. And in that, right in that spot, Jesus feels a sorrow, compassion, love, for that man. He's lost. I'm lost without the love of Jesus because I'm in the crowd of people at that feeding of the 5,000. But the truth is, particularly in this part of the world, North Vancouver right now, uh, in this 
part of history, I am lost without the love of Jesus Christ because I am like that rich man. And then every person in our world, like I, I qualify, well, I'm not really rich though. But of course I am in the scope of the world. And as this man is lost, so am I. Because I build up other things in my life. I even pray, dear God. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for uh, blessing in our lives and favor from God. But sometimes I use it as the metric of my life. Dear God, would you take care of this for me? And this, and this, and this. But then there are so many things and so much stuff that I have forgotten at times what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And even sometimes I turn away disheartened. I would like to follow you, Lord. But I can't let go of these things. I just can't do it. And right there, this is one that's, you know, the vitriol that's put towards the rich sometimes in our culture can be quite strong as well. But what Jesus does for this man right in that place is that's where he loves this man. The man hasn't given everything away. The man hasn't turned towards Jesus. And right there is when Jesus looked at him and loved him. And would you do the same for other people that you're judging? That point I wanted to kind of show you or teach you in this as we consider these scenes, and this is important to me, is that as we look at these things, you can see from the crowds and from the rich man that the love of Jesus Christ respects no divisions that the world sets out. Never has and never will. The love of Jesus Christ doesn't take your prejudice and sanctify it and say, well, you know, I know you've got a problem with these people, these terrible sinners, so I'm not going to love them. It respects no divisions. Our world works on divisions. It might be hard for you to see because you might be the beneficiary of a lot of these lines just when you cross the border into the United States and back into Canada. Do you know how many people can't do that? And you can go one after the other after the other. Many are based on money, but not all. This is my favorite theologian who puts it this way. He says, the world constantly divides. That's what the world does. Constantly divides. Acceptable, unacceptable, worthy, unworthy, you know, rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful. He goes on to say, if the church does this, if the church becomes a place that divides, then we have become worse than the world. And how will anybody ever see the love of Jesus Christ then which respects none of these divisions? Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 with the leper, Matthew chapter 9 with the tax collector, John 3 with the religious leader, Nicodemus, which is where John 3.16 comes from, right? So this is a respected religious leader. He's loving him. John 4, the Samaritan woman. Luke 7, the sinful woman. Luke 8, the blind beggar. Luke 7, the Roman centurion servant. He's loving even the oppressors of these people. Mark 5, a demon-possessed man. Mark 10, as we've looked at, this rich man. And there's many more. The love of Jesus Christ respects no divisions. And I will say, and there's something for us as we move forward, seeking to witness to the love of Jesus in this world. 
The love of Jesus Christ respects no divisions. And if we have lost this, if the church sees the world according to dividing lines, then we have lost witness to Jesus Christ. We witness then to something else. Acceptability, moral worthiness, religion. The world needs to know the love of God in Jesus Christ for all people. So I was walking home from a coffee meeting on Lonsdale a week and a bit ago. Actually, I just met with Lawrence for coffee. And I was walking back up 15th Street, which is normally a busy street in between Lonsdale and Grand Boulevard. And I hear from across the street, as I pass kind of Lionsgate and Evergreen there, I hear this, Hey, Father! Yeah, that's about right. No respect. I look across, and it's an old friend I haven't seen in a long time, a good friend of Jennifer's and and mine when uh, our kids were younger, in elementary school. And she works at Evergreen. That's about all I'll say. I don't want to give too much away. Um, And we helped her a bit. Well, I don't know how much we helped her, but we sure sat with her. And she went through a, a lot of difficulty a number of years ago and still kind of trying to make it. And she calls me father because she has a Muslim background. She's Muslim, I suppose. And so she thinks it's kind of funny that I'm a minister, so she just equates it with priest. And she says, Father! She came here one time when Mark Woodyard was singing at night, and she said, he looks so much like Jesus. <laughs> Long hair. <laughs> so from across the street, she yells, hey, Father! And I look, and right away, I mean, we have this laugh, and... and and I said, hi, and I said her name. And then we both started running across the street to the other side. And then we were, uh-oh, she's running to that side. So we met in the middle, and there were no cars anywhere. We looked down towards Lonsdale, up towards Grand Boulevard, and we thought, no cars. So I grabbed her, and I hugged her. And then I said, okay, we've got to do this. We're in the middle of the road. We've got to spin around. And so I just, we, we spun around and then went back to one side of the street, and she was laughing and laughing. And it was so great just to see her again. And kind of catch up. She had to go to work. And and it's hard for me to say this because I don't want to disrespect her or her faith in any way. But as I left, this was, I thought, does she know the love of God for her? I want her to know the love of Jesus Christ because a lot has happened in her life where she's been made to feel unacceptable. Does she know that right now? This is our task and our vocation. I don't know how many of us are good at this. This longing for the world to know the love of Jesus Christ. And it's the call of our lives. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall be my witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to be a community of people that witness to the love of God for the world in Jesus Christ. When we have experienced the love of Jesus Christ, the failures of our lives or of other people's lives or the successes, just like the crowds and the rich man, we are not impressed by either. Because no one is lost or forgotten when they know the love of Christ. It's true for everyone you know. So we invite you to respond this now and we're working on order of service and how we do it and so it might feel a bit disjointed at times but that's okay I I like the way we're going 
And so we're going to have communion in just a couple of minutes uh, after I pray. And there's response time. And know that we always have prayer available at the back after the services. You're welcome also to go, and I'll say this, I I hope there's prayer people assigned. Uh, And if you could go back there early, because starting now or soon, if you want to go to the back during the communion time and be prayed for, you can do that as well in the last couple of songs of the service to open this response time. But you also respond by receiving communion, and today we'll have the ushers pass the communion out, and you can simply take it as you receive it. We say the communion is for anyone who knows Jesus Christ or wants to. If you can simply say this, I am lost without the love of Jesus Christ, then you can receive. You don't have to. You can let it pass by. Let me pray. And I'm also going to pray for the offering and the communion. We won't take the offering until after we do the communion, just to let the ushers know. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your love for us. Form us and teach us in what we've heard from your word this morning. I thank you right now. I've got a couple people on my list. I want to praise you for what you've done in Corrine's life this week, in her finding a place and finding a new job. We praise you, Heavenly Father, and ask your continued blessing in her life. We thank you for John Van Hoogstraten and Mal Finlayson, who celebrate birthdays this week. Thank you that they are part of this community. We love them. And we pray for many other concerns in our community and around the world. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and interpret our groanings in prayer as we lift up our loved ones and others before you. We'll just take a minute now and in silence, you don't have to say anything out loud, offer up your own prayers to God. And now we pray for this communion. I have a picture in my mind as I'm praying. Let me describe it to you, kind of see it as I describe it as well. It's that we can't actually be there on that day with the feeding of the 5,000. We can't actually be there as the rich man or in that scene. But that's why we have this, the bread and the cup. This is the reminder of Jesus' love for you past your sinfulness, past your weariness, like sheep without a shepherd, like someone who can't let go of the things that aren't giving life. And you receive this body broken for you, Jesus giving his life, this cup, Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Heavenly Father, bless this communion as we receive it, that we would trust in our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.